Hey, and welcome to this podcast. It's a long one, so I'll make the introduction short. I'm speaking with Dennis Dyken today, the drummer of the Smithereens. This is a sort of a two-hour ranging conversation. Somebody at uh, the WFMU holiday party said that it sounded like two guys just in a diner talking about music, which is funny because after this was over, we went to a diner and talked for two more hours about music. Uh, you only get to hear the first two hours. There were no microphones in the diner. But here's me and Dennis Dyken uh, just talking about the the history, career of the Smithereens, but also about all other weird stuff. Just there's a lot of tangents. Uh, it's long. I hope you enjoy it. Um, some interesting stuff coming up. Always check WFMU.org slash Michael for the list. And I hope you're having a good new year. I will talk to you soon. Ah, yes, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, two number one hits to start off the program today. The first one from the Smithereens, uh, Something New, which is ironically titled, perhaps, and then The Kinks, Set Me Free. Uh, just fantastic tracks. Uh, for two hours today, we're going to be joined by a fantastic guy, a guy who loves music, a guy who knows a thing or two, not afraid to share his opinion, great drummer, fair harmony singer and has written a few great songs which we're going to get into all of this lately of course i'm talking about dennis dyke and dennis welcome to the program how are you buddy hey mike i'm doing good how's this for a level check we're all good here with it's a level? 10 out of 10 okay you're perfect five by five <laughs> i'm so pleased you could join me we've been working on this a while uh the the, the there is I've, I've said this often the smithereens are sort of the most new jersey band i can think of after bruce springsteen and the Four Seasons, I guess. Right? But that's a different type of group, I suppose. Just, in, But in terms of Jersey identity, somehow I don't think of the Four Seasons, maybe it's just me, as that's not their identity. Yeah, okay. Like, I think of them in some small studio in Broadway somewhere. I don't know. Okay, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, the, Bruce certainly put Jersey on the, the rock and roll map for a lot of people. And, uh, and we... We wore it on our sleeves, maybe not voluntarily, but uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it comes through, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We're in New Jersey right now. I always think that's I don't know for some reason that's just one of the one of the many things I think of. And we, you and I were discussing this uh, yesterday. The first time I saw the Smithereens, can you figure out what year it was? Eighty. It was eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah, it was. I think, I think autumn of eighty six or late summer. It was on our first real tour. Um, wow. Yeah. We started that tour for real in July of 86 when we did a, 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 a mini tour opening for the Ramones. Uh-huh. And our LP, especially for you, wasn't even in the stores yet. It was kind of sh- sh- being shipped. Huh. And uh, But Blood and Roses, our first big single, had already been covering the airwaves coast to coast and on MTV through a fluke. Uh, but to, to get back to your question... Yeah, we were on our first tour, and uh, we played Long Beach, a place called Bogart's. Wednesday week was on the bill. Oh, yeah. great! Also a great band. I saw many times when I lived in L.A. Uh, yeah, Bob Say, who owned or ran Moby Disc Records, I used to play softball with him every uh, Saturday afternoon. A bunch of great guys, all music-related, guys who worked in record stores or in bands or guys who managed bands, played in bands. 
shoplifters, all kinds of music <laughs> record people played in this uh, softball game. And Bob Say said, hey, you want to go see the Smithereens? We drove down there and uh, saw you and said hello after the show. And I remember you were friendly and you were taking apart your own drum set uh, while we were talking to really? you. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we had a crew at that time. Maybe I didn't trust them. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do remember hanging out, talking with people. I can't say I remember, remember you specifically, but yeah. I remember partying backstage it's just so funny you know it's just uh what a small world it is and now and now you're doing occasionally you're still doing fill-ins on wfme when you're not uh, busy with the smithereens uh dennis dyken is our guest today i'm i do want to play some kind of just regular show music and stuff yeah do your thing man uh we're gonna hear some records and then we're gonna be back to talk with dennis are you into this uh what i thought was the best record of last year the robbie folks linda gale lewis record yeah i really like that record and i Thanks to you, you really turned me on to it, and, and uh, it, it was great. I never get sick of hearing it. Good, because you're going to hear a, a track off it right now. Uh, questions for Dennis? You could put them on the uh, comments board. Uh, a few songs, and then back to uh, talk about the past of the Smithereens, the present of the Smithereens, which is interesting, and uh, the future of the Smithereens, which is certainly interesting. Uh, after this, from Robbie Folks, Linda Gale Lewis. Yes, who cares for me? Who cares for me? 
this is Sonny Curtis, and you're listening to Michael Shelley on WFMU. Uh, I want to testify a song that Dennis picked in before that, Robbie Folks and Linda Gale Lewis. Dennis Dykin is my guest this morning. How you doing, Dennis? I'm doing good. Why'd you pick that one? Well, because you asked me for a soul record, and I had it in my bag. And but why do you love that record? Uh, man, I, well, everything about it, the groove, the feel, the vocal, the playing on it, that's the Funk Brothers, I'm told. Actually, George Clinton told me that. I met him at a party once. Oh. And, uh... I bet he has the good drugs. <laughs> <laughs> And he, uh, you know, he was in Jersey for a while. He lived in Plainfield, oh. New Jersey. I think he had a, I think he had a barber shop. I think he was a barber in really? Plainfield. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, that when that record came out in the summer of '67, it was 
it was I couldn't get off my little record player, yeah. and, and uh, it really. You know, I guess it's Benny Benjamin, I think, on 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 drums, and well, it has um, that kind of sl- that slower tempo, but still groovy. That's kind of hard to yeah. to, to do. Yeah. yeah, I was at the Motown Museum a couple weeks ago. Have you ever been there? I've never been there. Yeah. Oh, oh, we were just talking about yeah. that. It's, we'll get into it some other time or later, maybe. Do but. they have any demonstrations of the sound? I mean, do they play stuff back through the speakers? No, but what they do have, and I, last time I was there, I don't think they had this going on. They, it's a. a you know, it's a visitor participation thing where you could actually yell into the the echo chamber. <laughs> it's in the ceiling, oh. and uh, there's this opening in the ceiling of one of the rooms that they that's part of the tour, and they invite you to, to go as a group and yell into the echo chamber. But no, they didn't play anything, uh, which now that you mention it, is kind of a drag. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would love to just hear just to stand there. I mean. Just to, or maybe put the tambourine in the echo chamber. That, yeah, that, that would know, be cool. But yeah. you know, the control room is intact, and the candy machine right outside the <laughs> country, where purportedly Stevie Wonder would every, every day would get a baby Ruth, and they had it in a certain slot, so he knew being <laughs> blind where to where to get the baby Ruth. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Smithereens. We, we were both kind of amazed, and I know your mind is slightly blown that the Smithereens are almost 40 years old, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'll be th- 39 years in March. Uh, and Carteret, New Jersey, uh, three three of you guys have known each other since what age? Well, I know Mike Mazaris, our, ba- our bass player, since I, mm. 1965. Oh, I was uh, eight Eight years old. We met in second or third grade in A. Lincoln School in Carteret. So you've got, you've known these guys forever. Yeah, and then I met Jimmy the first day of freshman year. I always tell the story. I'll make it quick. It's day one, period one, Earth Science, row one, seat one, there's Jimmy Babjack, right? And <clears throat> he had kind of like a beetle haircut. And I went into high school. My main objective was to find musicians to form a band <laughs> that I musicians that were hip enough. My criteria was if they if I can meet a guitar player that could play, I can't explain. Then I found somebody to work with. So there's this kid, row one. I said, Well, he's, his hair is kind of cool, and he opens up his loose leaf and plastered on the inner uh, uh, cover of his loose leaf are color photos from Hit Parader of The Who. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to talk to this guy. I think we started playing together that, that week. Well, you know, I have no idea. Carteret is not uh, it, It's not a place... I don't know where it is. It's not on the off the the Garden State Parkway. Like, there's no signs oh, for it. Oh, it's totally off the turnpike. There's exit uh, 12 off the turnpike. Off the turnpike. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's right there. So it's it, in the middle of New Jersey, what they call Central Jersey? Yes. You know, it was a real... Uh, That's a very Jersey thing. Like, there's North Jersey, South Jersey, and Central Jersey. And up here, we're in North Jersey, which mm-hmm. is sort of like a suburb of New York City. But I yeah. think Central Jersey and South Jersey... Well, South Jersey is a suburb of Philadelphia. Yeah. And Central Jersey's like, where farms are. Right, so this was on the coast, actually. Carter, it was oh, yeah? it was a port where I was there recently, and I, I drove down by the river, as we used to call it, and there was an oil tanker, you know, or a, a tanker of some kind, uh, parked there as they often did. So there was a lot of industry there, a lot of factories, and very blue collar, a lot of taverns. I mean, I, I they say per capita, whatever per mile, it was the most. Taverns you would find in New Jersey. And what was the drinking age when you guys were in high school? Oh, 21, I think. When the, You know, I always get fuzzy when it... I didn't drink in high school. I made up for it later. But I didn't drink in high school. I grew up in New York and it was 18. Yeah, it which changed so at some weird. point. Yeah, well, it's funny because it changed to 19... 
when I turned 19. 19, and then it changed to 21 the next year. But yes, in high school, I could legally drink. But uh, There was one point in, uh, I think when we were still in high school, it must have still been 21 cause, and 18 or 19 in New York, because the outer bridge crossing to Staten Island was very close to where we lived. Uh-huh. And on a, every sunny May or June Friday afternoon, there would be a truant officer posted at the <laughs> at the foot of the bridge. <laughs> Seriously, because the youngsters. Oh, would, that's so funny. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, Carteret was cool. It was um, a lot of Eastern European. It was a, a real mix. You know, when I first moved there, I, I grew up uh, for my first five years in Garfield, not far from here. Then family moved to Carteret. Everybody on my block was either from Bayonne or Jersey City. So I learned the accent pretty. I didn't get the accent, but you know everybody had the Hudson County accent. And, and you were telling me you remember asking for and getting a snare drum at what age? Well, it wasn't a snare. It was one of those uh, a drum Indian metal tom toms with a rubber top and, oh. and a little. Yeah, I was two when I got that. But you asked for it. I asked for it, and I remember getting it. I remember that Christmas, and yeah, I I, I totally wanted to do that. Really young. My mom says I was banging around in the crib. I don't know. I guess most babies do that. I remember that uh, um, once Mike Mazeros was telling me that you you were just always the guy who was just if there was a song playing you were just yeah you were just beating with your hands you just beating. I still do that. You still yeah. beat. Uh, so how did you guys? Um, so did the, the the three of you started to jam together well, first? Jimmy and I did, and uh, we needed a bass player, and right. After high school, Mike picked up a bass, and I mean, to me, Mike is one of the, the best bass players on the planet. Uh, yeah, and to me, and uh, we, I believe he's sort of the secret sauce of the Smithereens mm-hmm. yeah. in a way. Yeah, I always thought that if you just take Jimmy and I and we play a downbeat together, it, you can tell it's the Smithereens. It's just, just Jimmy and I, but you add Mike, and you really have the combustion. And uh, Mike learned to play so quickly and became good so quickly. He had some grounding because he took accordion lessons when he was a kid, I guess. That helped, you know. God bless Louis Pasteur. He took all the kids in, in Carteret. But, uh, yeah, so he just he, – he, he was one of our best friends. So he said, these guys need a bass player. Love music and hop to it. Boom. Perfect. Yeah. And then I'm going to guess years of playing cover bands in high school, et cetera, et cetera. And Pat D'Anunzio puts a ad – classified ad in the in some newspaper and finds you guys yeah we were putting our own ad out and we were having trouble finding we had a couple people no one or is two people still high school no this is outside of house this is between 76 and 79 okay and we we played as a trio a lot just learning stuff and then we found a lead singer that we didn't quite work out and then i was still pursuing playing with cover bands and other bands while we were trying to find our missing link so Meanwhile, in 1978 or 79, Pat puts an ad in the Aquarian, which is still around. Uh, I've met so many musicians through the classifieds, and that's how I met Pat. I actually joined a cover band with Pat and some other guys from uh, the Scotch Plains area in 79. And his ad said, looking for a drummer into Buddy Holly, Elvis Costello, The Jam, The Beatles, The Who. And um, so I actually... Played with them or rehearsed with them for six months, and we played one gig. <laughs> but um, Pat and I hit it off really quickly, and uh, we were very much on the same page musically and culturally. And, you know. 
uh, it's such an interesting time for music because, especially I think in this sort of tri- what they call the tri-state area, there was a huge group of people sort of locked into the classic rock thing, mm. like people that thought the 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 doors still existed, you know, mm. in terms of how much they listened to them or yeah. bands like that. And then there was like this whole other kind of new wavy thing, but there was still disco sort of happening yeah. and there was still AM radio totally still happening yeah. and things were sort of busting, you know. Yeah. Uh, interesting time to start a band and especially for some of the rings because in a lot of ways you're in that 60s mold, but you don't sound at all like a 60s band in terms of sonically, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, but there's so much influence there. I don't know. I've always thought that was what I liked about the Smithereens and m- maybe what some people didn't get. I don't know. Yeah. We, it, when, you're right, there was that period. It was, I guess the music, pop music was trying to find itself again somehow in a commercial sense. And um, But when we started playing, yeah, New Wave was the rage. And there was uh, the Rockabilly Revival and the whole uh, Eurythmics type. There were so many bands that were sounding like the Eurythmics or elect- Electric, uh, right. whatever. The, and we, we didn't fit in anywhere. We really didn't. We were just doing our thing. When we started out, it was we were more influenced by uh, the Who, the Birds, the Bo Brummels were a big influence on us you know so uh we but we had a hard edge and and we had originals and and we could play and we just stuck to our guns also people still went out to see music there were still a lot there were of so clubs. many clubs yeah. yeah there were clubs all over bleaker street we got our our start at kenny's castaways and uh really missed that place and um yeah and new jersey of course jersey was mostly cover band heaven but uh, there were places like the dirt club and hitsville in Passaic and a number of other places so you, am i right you guys put out your own ep 1980 yeah and then another ep called beauty and sadness right yeah in 80 we did girls about town we, we always tried to go for the gusto we saved up our, our money and we went to a good studio we we went to um at the time it was chelsea uh i think it was later what's that on um, 14th street Mon- monster um can't remember. Anyway, it was a really good studio. Blondie were recording there. Record plant? No, no, no. That was later. It was on 14th Street. Um, anyway, so we we wanted the record to sound professional, and we we wanted to do it right. So we always we always did that. Beauty and Sadness uh, was recorded at the record plant. Yeah. Uh, uh, Beauty and Sadness, 1983. So you got three more years honing your your thing. And uh, somebody I read said. They call that record Beatles meets ACDC. And I thought, oh, that's great. I kind of like that. I mean... I don't know if it applies to Beauty and Sadness. But a that, little bit. It's riffy, yeah. yet it's, you know... I think that came in where we started propagating that a little more towards the 11 album in 89. But uh, Beauty and Sadness um, did help us get moving because it got a review in Rolling Stone, a very good review in Rolling Stone. It caught the attention of a promoter who was bringing bands to scandinavia so we got in 84 to go overseas for the first time and and that was great and we came home and then there was like nothing happening for us for like two years what do you say we hear the title track go ahead all right beauty and sadness smithereens more with dennis dykin after this
Dennis Dykin and Bell Sound. With Bell Sound. With Bell Sound. The sun's going to shine in the morning. I wanted to call it with Bell Sound because I always liked the fact that uh, Billy J. Kramer said with the Dakotas. Yeah. I always liked that. He was with them. Yeah. In the studio. Uh, that's your solo album, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it was just terrific. You know, I was just telling you, you better make another one. Thanks. I did that with a guy called Pete DeBella, who's really talented. Uh, we wrote the stuff together. But we, Dave Amos helped me put it together, really. Um, there were so many disparate parts that were floating around and finished and unfinished things. And we holed up in the Bomb Factory, a studio in Burbank, uh, for a couple of different uh, sessions and Brought in guys from the Wondermints and Andy Paley and some other folks. I guess I was bit, my phone must have been broken. During you know that. it was. I was at the time, but you weren't in L.A. Uh, no, yeah. I. But it's a terrific record, and it's uh, I, I, you know appeal to Smithereens fans. But it has a sort of a wider mm. palette, I would say. And uh, people should go. Uh, is that a streaming record? You can focus? Yeah, I think it's. All, all over that. Yeah, I, I believe I should, so. I should mention officialsmithereens.com is uh, the official Smithereens website. And do you have your own website? Yeah, but, you know, not really. <laughs> I do. I think it's still there, but I haven't touched gotcha. it. Gotcha, okay. And, yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Smithereens website because it has our upcoming gigs. And I do want to let people know at some point today that we are playing, most locally, New York City a week from tonight at Sony Hall. Yes, yeah, Saturday, January 12th. Uh, Thursday, January 10th in Derry, New Hampshire. Friday, January 11th in Ridgefield, Connecticut at the Ridgefield Playhouse. I've heard that is a great venue from our uh, friend Joe Katz, our mutual friend who lives not too far from oh, there. Oh, Joe lives near. Yeah. Near and and Derry, the place in Derry, is, the Tupelo is quite good, too. And uh, Falls Church, Virginia, the State Theater on Friday, January 18th. And then a bunch of, uh, for our folks who live in California, you're playing out there for a while. And then there's some dates scattered around, but I'm sure you'll keep adding them to officialsmithereens.com. Uh before we heard you, we heard the Bo Brummels with mm-hmm. Don't Talk to Strangers. You said easily one of my favorite tracks ever. Yeah, absolutely. Don't Talk to Strangers is is way up there. You know how it is when you people, oh, can you name your favorite records? And <laughs> well, yeah, that one's definitely in my top 100, you know, but you're talking, <laughs> you know, the top 100 to geeks like us is, you know, proportionately. That's rare air. What's number one? Oh, What's th- whoa, that's a good question. What is number one? Today, do, you have, do you have one? I do, I do have one that I answer the question to. Yeah. I would say Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. Is that just, right? That 45 is just the greatest it's thing. It's great. I mean, it's just like, bam, yeah. and it's just off the races. It's in my top 100. I met that drummer, by the way, Bobby Gregg, may he rest. He was a, a great drummer. He played on a lot of cool records, including One, Two, Three oh. by... Uh, Len Barry, and um, a lot of Cameo Parkway stuff. Oh. Yeah, but anyway, I digress. What's my number one? Holy moly, there. That's really, really tough. Um, arg. Um, mm. All right, just <laughs> uh, it, it, this might change in two minutes, but California Girls. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's so good. Yeah. It's just so Yeah, the first 10 seconds, it's over, yeah. yeah. Um, and before the Bo Brummels, we heard from the Smithereens Beauty and Sadness. The title track from that EP and uh, Dennis Dyken, drummer of the Smithereens, is our special guest. And you're also, I would say, the main harmony singer of the Smithereens, right? Yeah. Um, by default, I guess. It just... Uh I always like to sing, and you know, listen to those early Beatle records so much. It taught me to sing harmony. Yeah. That's what know. I said to my daughter. Just when the radio comes on, sing harmony to everything. Yeah. Just and then you'll figure it out. Uh, what is the Court Tavern? It's like a, a thing that comes up a lot in the history of the Smithereens. Well, when we played there in the early '80s, it was um, a great 
venue. Uh, it, uh, it was a basement. The, the gig was a basement of a tavern and burger restaurant kind of place around the corner from the courthouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Oh. Jimmy had a record store on Easton Avenue called uh, Flame and Groovies. I was partnered with him for a little while. And um, there was a scene. There was a bunch of bands. There was Matt Pinfield came out of that scene and um, trying to think some of the other bands. Anyway, we 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 were getting airplay on WRSU at Rutgers and um, there was a scene happening there and we played there every month, I guess, and, and really helped, it helped uh, build a following. I saw some of our old friends uh, in New England recently, I think in Rhode Island or for where, wherever we were playing that we knew from back then. Yeah, we, we, we really cut our teeth there in Kenny's Castaways and the Dirt Club. Those were probably our three main Just places. quickly, you and Jim, uh, owned a record store how long did that last i was only there for maybe six months or so when it started in 80 late 81 or early 82 um and then jimmy took it over and made a uh, video store when when that was first coming on that scene was first coming around it was called captain Vi- he changed it to captain video and then um people might remember a record <coughs> store called music in a different kitchen um in new brunswick which inhabited the the rear bit of, of that shop yeah uh let's talk quickly again uh alan betrock produced that first stuff a guy whose name is on a lot of great records especially early records he had a knack <clears throat> excuse me uh for finding young bands like db's marshall crenshaw you mm-hmm. and working with them on their early stuff and then letting them go yeah uh, and he sort of had, he had a label shake right he did yeah we were not on shake but um yeah he he did nice guy Alan, well, he was he was a nice guy, and he was a good pal, and he had this other thing. Well, he was he one of the founders of New York Rocker, perhaps? Maybe, yeah. And then he had his own publication called The Rock Marketplace, which was, you know, it had a swap section, like kind of like Goldmine, but much more stripped down. But what, it was one of the first very scholarly, in-depth uh, publications to delve into lesser-known British groups or even well-known groups. He did great a great cover story on Jan and Dean and on and on. But he, he also wrote that first girl groups book. So Alan was really deep into the good stuff. And um, yeah, and he, he brought that to his pr- production. Uh, after the first LP was especially for you, 1986, Don Dixon produced it. He was coming sort of off of that uh, R.E.M., thing which made him and Mitch Easter very hot in mm. terms of uh, making records and Marshall Crenshaw our friend our mutual friend uh, turns up on keyboards yeah he turns up again later in the in the yeah. smithereen story you just cross paths with him in the gig world yeah um by the way Don Dixon's great and he did a great job for us and N- we're another st- nice guy right? we're st- yeah super great guy and super talented we're still real good friends but I gotta confess at the time Enigma Records who signed us for that deal wanted us suggested don dixon i really wanted him to i had never heard of him at that point mm. i don't know if any of us did how funny but it worked out great and he worked with us a lot <clears throat> in the future um and marshall yeah uh we had opened for him a couple times 81 82 83 at the fast lane in asbury park and um place in poughkeepsie the chance and oh, yeah. uh so we were coming from the same place mu- musically and and um, so we knew each other, and I, yeah, we asked him to play. He played keyboards. He played Hammond B3 on Strangers When We Meet, for, on Especially For You, and he played a six-string bass part on Jimmy's song White Castle Blues, oh, yeah. which was a bonus track on Especially right. For You. 
Got, and, you, got you into the White Castle Hall of Fame, though. Oh, yeah. How about that? <clears throat> yeah, I'm actually Jimmy, uh, our friend Beebs, who wrote the lyrics to White Castle Blues, and yours truly are in the White Castle Hall of Fame. And they gave us a – they have this thing every year in Columbus, Ohio, They where they induct people who had some connection with White Castle, uh, be it um, – for for example, the year we were inducted, there were a group of guys at the time, I guess they were in their 50s or 60s, um, from Clifton, New Jersey, called themselves the CADS, the Clifton Adult Delinquent Society. And they had this great story about when they were in high school, and they this, some connection to White Castle, and we had the song, and there's, I don't know, half a dozen people inducted that year. But every year, they fly people out to Columbus, Ohio, yeah. to their headquarters. We got this great plaque with like a, a 3D burger replicon <laughs> yes i know and we're gonna find out in a couple of weeks if we got inducted into the new jersey new jersey oh, that's a big deal at some uh at some point and we'll get to this part of the story you guys did record at rumbo recording didn't we you? did yeah for smithereens 11 we did a whole bunch of all just about all the overdubs which yeah. was owned by the captain of captain and right? daryl dragon yep you know i tried to get him on the show many times over the years and mm. i and i Got in touch with his people eventually, but uh, never quite worked it out. And now he's just passed away, of course. Yeah, I was sad to hear that. I saw him when he played with the <clears throat> Beach Boys as a touring member. Actually, I think I did. I mean, I, I don't remember. I was so 72 ish. No, no, I did not. And at the time, um, Tennille was in the touring Beach Boys as a backup, backup singer and percussionist. And I remember seeing her on stage with him at the Capitol Theater in Passaic. Yeah. Uh, did you cross paths with him while you guys were at Rumbo? I think maybe a nod. Huh. I think. I don't remember hanging with him. Yeah. Well, he, uh, not every everyone should know this. Uh, WFMU staff communicates via a couple of different email lists, some which uh, all the staff gets, you know, if the parking lot's closed or something. And then some of them you can opt into, and some of them talk about music or whatever. And uh, the, anytime anyone dies, people love to sort of, share reminiscence about him and there were some people on the staff who sort of really not happy uh, about captain tenille music mm. and while certainly it got very treacly muskrat love is not something you really ever need to listen to but to me love will keep it together is sort of the very end of the top 40 era to me it's that you know it's mm. it's very much still in line with good loving by the rascals and you know kind mm. of there's a progression there mm. and and it's also of course hal blaine on drums which oh, is a smoke and track and he said that uh, he did not there were no vocals when he recorded it. is that right right so he did not know what the song was called he didn't uh, know anything about it man. and and I, he said his wife at the time heard it on the radio and said i think that's you <laughs> and of course it became the record of the year yeah well so we were talking about this before in the <clears throat> 60s he had i think it was five consecutive grammy record of the right, records he, of the year he played the drums on the the song that won the grammy for becker of the year five years in a row what dominant there's no record like that ever <laughs> crazy it was yeah. uh, i think taste of honey in 65 strangers in the night 66 uh up up and away 67 i don't remember 68 oh ma mrs Which robinson maybe or? or mrs robinson maybe and so that's four and i forget oh up up and away maybe in 69 and uh, no, I mean um, Aquarius. Was yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so they took a break for a couple of years. Then he won another one for this Captain and Neil track. And flash forward about fifty years or whatever it was, then he gets another one with the Glenn Campbell track uh, two, three years ago. That one record of the year. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, the Grammys completely suck. I'll say that. They do now anyway. But uh, I think it's a cool record. Uh, was it, I'm not going to miss you? Or is that? It's that, okay. I, I dig it. The, the The Wrecking Crew were reunited for that. Wow. And so I mean, for a guy like Hal Blaine, who is his record is is incredible. You know, uh, the, the amount of music that we all dig that he is part of. It's just. It's mind blowing, and, you got, and you've, you're sort of friendly with him. I'm for, very friendly for, with yeah. Hal. Yeah, I've known yeah. him for quite a while. He used my drum kit once oh, yeah. in 1985 at the Bottom Line. He was touring with David Grisman, and I was on the phone. Well, Dan, I'm coming to New York, and uh, I'm touring with David. Oh, great, Hal! What drums are you using on the tour? Well, we're just using rented gear. And say, hey, Hal, you want to use my kit? <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't want to impose. No, it's okay. And so I was his. Oh, drum that's band. so fun. Oh, it's so. And he brought his symbols though. Um, <clears throat> that that ride symbol that you hear on the top of California Girls. That he had oh, those symbols. Like, so I got to fondle those. That was pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> you turned me on to him, and he was a guest on this program. You know, a million years ago. Uh, folks can check out the the archive of that stuff. Um, I spoke to him a couple months ago. He's pushing ninety, or is ninety? He's wow. Still kicking and still sounds great, and you know, I was I did a little googling of the Captain and Tennille, and I did not. I mean, did you, have you read their story at all? Not really. No. Apparently, he was a little bit older than her. She met him on a session or a gig, and kind of pursued him, and he kind of relented. They got signed, and the A and M said that they were married but they weren't oh and so they kind of got married and he was not a demonstrative romantic guy never initiated any physical contact with her or any any tenderness you know uh maybe muskrat love was a call to that any affection uh he 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 was a um, uh, what do you call it? A, a, um, a person who thinks they're sick all the time. A, oh, hypochondriac. He was a hypochondriac, uh, and eventually, uh, you know. And I always thought they were in love. Me you know? too. Yeah. They, didn't they have a TV show together? <clears throat> yes. Too? Yeah. And eventually, a couple of years ago, he was so paranoid that the government was stealing energy that he wanted to spend ten thousand dollars on a generator and apparently they were having financial troubles and she just left at that point oh, and uh, i didn't know and they got that. a divorce it's yeah. very interesting i had no idea i had no idea either yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he worked with brian uh with with uh, the beach boys but he worked with dennis uh that's right dennis yeah. wilson yeah uh for some reason they took their first album and i i read that they re-recorded it in spanish i'm guessing they just re-recorded the vocals, vocals right yeah, yeah. and mm. the but not just the the track the entire album in Spanish. I, th- I think so. I it, guess she must have been a Spanish speaker. I, or maybe that song took off in Spanish-speaking countries and they felt the need to, you know, launch another career in, in all those, you know, facet of their career. Let's hear it uh, in Spanish. Yeah. Uh, and you and I both think this is good. Yeah, and, uh, the track in particular. Well, I think it's a great song. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great melody. I, the whole thing is great. I, I have no guilty pleasure about it. It's, great. It, it's a great <laughs> single, but the, 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 the drums are particularly arresting. I totally yeah. agree. And the way they're recorded is that's a very simple way that just drum, no records drums sound like this anymore. They either sound trashier or much, much more sophisticated. It's, this is just very plain. It's and, also in the wrists. It's not just the way it's mic'd. I uh, mean, Hal Blaine at this time was so... At the peak of his powers, and he just does so many flourishes and amazing little touches on this track. Yeah, all right, let's listen to this uh, back with Dennis Dykin and Hal Blaine. Yeah. After this.
otra mujer quiera tu amor Recordarás el amor de los dos Amor, que yo si te quiero yo Que te necesito Piensa en los dos y el amor Que viviremos por siempre
This is listener Rob from Sugarland, Texas, and you're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Stay tuned for the greatest show on the greatest station, The Michael Shelley Show. You never saw me dance, have you, Dennis? Um, yeah, but you didn't know it. <laughs> what? At one of your parties. Yeah, you had a little too much wine. The old man had too much wine, and you know. He's, <laughs> he's lying, folks. Uh, the Beach Boys, in the back of my mind, in duophonic stereo, uh, Dennis Wilson and Rumbo with uh, Sound of Free, and uh, Captain E. Tenille with that song in Spanish. Uh, let's start with Dennis Wilson and Rumbo. Rumbo, I guess, was the captain's nickname? Yeah, there was... They, they had, uh, from what I read, I think he had some kind of um, uh, mascot, some kind of toy elephant or something that they called Rumbo. Somebody might correct me out there, but yeah, he... Um, huh. Somehow it was connected to a, a, a toy elephant or an image of an elephant called Rumbo. Huh. Yeah. And, uh, yep. And I like that record, Sound of Free. Always liked it. And I, I do wonder what the, the division of duties were when it came to writing on that one. I agree. You know? uh, I would guess Dennis came in with some simple piano chords and a simple melody in most of the lyrics, and Daryl helped him shape it up, I guess. But it's it's great, and there's it's a very interesting recording, and it very much fits into the Beach Boys thing yeah. that was going on during that time. It could have turned up on one of those early 70s albums well i heard that on when they did surfs up that album surfs up that there's no dennis tunes on there and oh, there was a reason i read about it re- do you know what i'm talking to there was he had songs that could have been on that album and he got 
mad or some for some reason, and it would have made the album so much better. It's always interesting to me that um, there are not many, but relatively many co-writes between Mike and Dennis, mm-hmm. two guys who apparently hated each other, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But they did co-write uh, tracks together. They did. Uh, and then we heard Beach Boys in the back of my mind. What does duophonic mean? Duophonic was, um, give me the album cover. I think Capital explains it on there. Oh, good. And uh, this is the first way I heard this album was in duophonic. Uh, because you, you just went to the store and you bought a duophonic like copy. to have stereo records, even when I was a kid, to pick apart the sounds on records. And um, that was I didn't know from the that duophonic was fake stereo. But this is what it says on the back of the sleeve. This capital duophonic record is designed for stereo phonographs. Duophonic is an exclusive capital electronic development designed to enrich irreplaceable monophonic high fidelity recordings that have proven their lasting popularity. It brings to these great performances a brilliant new two channel sound that takes full advantage of the reproduction characteristics of today's finest stereo phonographs. And I hope that answers your question. So fake stereo, just trying to to fool teenagers into buying yeah like she's a woman and i feel fine right uh, we're duophonic right yeah. but the the beatles ones sound particularly terrible some of them they're just so phony and fake sounding yeah. uh let's talk about folks who have um i want to interrupt you for just one Go second ahead. would you please hold that thought <clears throat> yeah this uh, did you read that book i am brian wilson mm, is that his newest book yeah the one that came out two yeah. three years ago i liked it there was um my wife and i listened to the audio version which was not in Brian's voice, unfortunately, but there was a couple revelations in that book, and what I came away from, what really from it, and what really stuck with me is that he said the song we just listened to in the back of my mind mm-hmm. was inspired in large part by "Since I Don't Have You" by the Skyliners, oh. which is a really important record to me. And it's not like he's ripping it off, but you could hear, ah, I don't have everything, and even the bridge where the bridge goes, it so. When I learn that kind of stuff, it just goes, whoa, how cool is that? Yeah, you know? two pieces of the puzzle all of a sudden put together. Yeah, you know, and an, he said another uh, inspiration for <clears throat> um, Surfer Girl. Always knew it was um, uh, When You Wish Upon a Star, but he points to the Dion and the Belmonts version. Oh. And also uh, the Four Freshmen version of Little Girl Blue. Anyway, I love learning that stuff. Frank in Queens knows what duophonic means. All right. Crap, he says. <laughs> I like it. You know, <laughs> um, this is very interesting coming in from Bambi Kino H- HQ. Uh, Daryl Dragon's childhood home in Laurel Canyon was sold to Wally Cox, who sold it to Peter Tork, <laughs> who sold it to Stephen Stills. And wow. The, and the Stones rehearsed there in their 69 tour. Man, that's, that's news we can use. That is. I that is. That. A, that's kind of amazing. Uh, somebody wants to know if the recording studio you are thinking of was Mercy Sound. Um, uh, oh no, the one in New York. It yeah. was called Chelsea. Then it was called, was it Baby Monster? Was that a studio or that was or something with Monster? I thought in the title. It, it was it was going for quite a while up until the nineties or even this century, I think. Nah. Anyway, but it was called Chelsea Sound at the time in in the year nineteen eighty. Funny thing is, our friend Chris Bulger was working as a an, like a, a gopher, a, a volunteer, and he set up our session. I didn't know him at the time. Huh. <laughs> but he, he was the guy setting up our mics, then he split once we rolled tape. But. It really is a small world. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny how you and I 
paths have crossed a few different ways a few different times. And then here at WFMU, of course. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Um, so let's talk about the second record, the second Smithereens record. Um, Green Thoughts. Our second album, yeah. By then we... we we right. talked about the first record. Yeah, we did, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I should also point out that Greg Calby comes into our, our mutual friend and former guest on this program, uh, uh, mastered your first bunch of records. I, yeah, if not <coughs> all of them. I forget if he did all of them, but if not, certainly most of them. Hi, Greg. So th- between that first and second record, you're doing a lot of touring. You go out to L.A. and Meet Me, indelibly I- imprinted on your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you guys listening to phony phone calls? What are you listening to in the van? Oh, yeah. That first tour, we had uh, the, somebody made us that a cassette with that great stuff that all touring bands at the time were listening to the Tommy Lasorda tapes you know <laughs> this was every night in the van I mean without fail you know we we put the leftover beer in the back of the van with our, our gear and stuff we get in the van and we pop the cassette in with Tommy Lasorda <laughs> oh this is Mark and Gary Lewis we, that was on there and <laughs> cut out make yeah <laughs> without reading it I'm with you, but um, and but then there was <laughs> there were some prank phone calls that uh, have not come out yet that were amazing, and they were all on this tape with a few other sundry uh, humor bits that were floating around at the time. But this was every night; it was a ritual that we would. Yeah, we were listening to that, and uh, we were listening to I think it was the Ramones' "Too Tough to Die" album. Was yeah. that at, at the time? Lou, I forget what Lou Reed album was was getting a lot of airplay. Yeah, there was um, there were a few cassettes that were not far from the dashboard a lot in those days. Uh, Robert Criscow gives this record a C plus. Did he? Yeah, I never liked him. <laughs> <laughs> I never found myself agreeing too much with him. I, to- I he always seemed to me to be a guy scrambling to stay relevant and mm. to to to. I mean, it's hard to be a rock critic and to like have people, you know, look at what you said about some record that we all know is classic that you said isn't that good and then over time things change also it's very hard to to judge a record without judging the context the context and sometimes and then 20 years later that context has disappeared and we still have the record yeah. i don't know well, also the rock critic gets a pile of albums right. and you have to review them while it's still relevant you don't really digest it you get your but, but i find that i i've had my opinions change on some records actually mine they, too they don't on a lot too Maybe but lot uh, too. well uh, what i want to ask is c plus huh? does that stuff did you care does that stuff hurt yeah, we cared yeah. um it didn't hurt me, but I cared. I, I wanted people to like because I, I thought we were making good records. Well, and- well is, is it wrong for a you know? There's a, a, a phrase that I, I taught my daughter when she was little that we all use in my family called "not my favorite." Okay, right? You know, do you want some chocolate cake? Not my favorite. Instead of saying I hate chocolate cake right. or whatever, it's not my cup of tea, right? Mm-hmm. So, should a reviewer who doesn't like this cup of tea review it and say this sucks? It's, it's- Everybody's got one, as the saying goes, opinions and something else, you know? So, I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but unfortunately, yeah, I mean, if he's in a bad mood the day he's listening to the record, right. he could have a, an impact on your career. Uh, this record recorded, I believe, in the Capitol Tower on yeah. Hollywood and Vine with oh, yeah. their very famous reverb... Uh, um, Echo chamber, echo chambers uh, that they you can actually use them now. Still right for anywhere in the world. Yeah, Yeah, people rent them for twenty minutes or whatever. So explain just to explain what this is. Somewhere in the Capitol Tower, there's a 
a small room with a speaker at one end and a microphone at the other, and they put Frank Sinatra's voice through the speaker and then put it back through the microphone and mix it into the thing. And, it, and for some reason, these sound amazing. Everybody yeah. wants these. Well, let me just backtrack. That period, we did the album in 16 days. Really quick. And in, in addition to that, we did, I think, a baker's dozen of B-sides and, and outtakes. We just bang, bang, bang. We really, we were so jazzed to be at the Capitol Tower. And we were working with Dixon. And we brought Jim Ball, our engineer from New York, from the record plant to work with us. Mm. The great thing is we had this really cool assistant uh, working for Capitol. Uh, Vince was his name. And he had the key the key to every room in, on the premises at the Capitol <laughs> Tower. Okay. And he was a great guy, and we'd be working late hours. I have a picture of me with a beer and my feet up on the, the president's desk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but he had the key to the echo chamber, which is below the parking lot behind mm-hmm. the tower. And we went. I have pictures of me in the echo chamber. You have to – I guess it's like a trap door, whatever you call it, and then – you know, the, the, the steps that are in the concrete is right. down. Oh, so cool. And there's this room that smelled of epoxy. I guess that's part of what they put on the walls. And, uh, huh. yeah, a speaker, microphone, and, it, yeah, it's world-famous echo chambers. That was such a kick. Am I right that – so you, you got signed to Enigma, and then Enigma sort of got folded into Capitol. So you found yourself on Capitol proper. Yeah, it was a little more than that. Our attorney found Can a – Can you lo- just give me one, a, you know, a, once in a while? A, a, lo- a loophole in the contract. Oh. Where we we were able to get out of our what but being that Enigma was associated with Capital, I think they were distributing them. Somehow it made things easier for us to go to Capital rather than some other label. And we wanted to be on Capital. Yeah, I mean Beatles, uh, Beach Boys, Hugh Sakamoto, and you know (laughs) Ray Anthony. The the inner sleeve of that Beach Boys record has those wonderful, you know, little two-inch square pictures of every record is great. Yeah, every one of them. But again, that that. Six, that two-week period in, in L.A. and being unleashed in the Capitol Tower was really magic. Am I right Del Shannon sings on that record? Yes, he does. Oh, man, I miss Del so much. We became friends, and uh, he sang. Um, we met him in New York and, and corresponded. We were talking about maybe working with him, uh, backing him up. I'm such a fan of Del's. Oh, you know. Yeah. And um, so deep. I mean, there's so many great cuts yeah. that weren't hits. Tons of them. Yeah, tons of them. And the Hank Williams album is great. Blah, blah, blah. So, so, Del, you want to sing on our record? Yeah, man, sounds great. Uh, you're at Capitol? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be over. And he came in and he did background vocals on a song called The World We Know. And I'll, I'll show you the picture later. Maybe you want to post it. It's him and I at the microphone together singing this backup part. And it was the coolest thing. So then, flash forward about a year and change, he calls Jimmy Babjack and me to sing backup on mm. one of his recordings. So yeah, that and which at the time was a demo, but it uh, subsequently, and that's a big word for me, was yeah. released as a bonus track on his Rock On album, his last album. Uh, this is probably an impossible question to answer, but he ended up taking his own life. Was there any inkling that he was a troubled guy, a tortured guy, a sad guy? Um, a couple times when I was with him, he just seemed kind of wired. Like any, Was he a but, substance guy? No. From what I understand, he, he I guess he was having some problems with depression, and he was on Prozac. Oh. And from what I gather, that can yeah yeah that can push you 
sometimes. I never, never was there any indication that he would take his life. He just seemed like he was. It's funny because for a lot of those guys, they had crazy ups and downs where, you know, at a certain point in their career, they were nowhere. They couldn't play to 10 people. And then 10 years later, they were huge again in mm-hmm. an oldies market. Yeah. I mean, the Beach Boys had these sort of sure. ups and downs. And then, you know, then they, another time would come and they would be out again because, the you know, everybody wanted drum machines or whatever. And then back again, yeah. you know. And yeah, it's just hard to ride those out sometimes. One thing I'll say about seeing Dell, even before I knew him, if you went to an oldies show and he was on the bill and you'd have the platters who were not really with it at the time. Tony Williams. I don't know if you remember seeing Tony Williams from the platters. He was like kind of nuts or something. Okay. Uh, once was that could be good. No, it wasn't. I mean, he was once one of the great, great vocalists. And yeah. he, long story, but you'd see them and you see well, the Earls were always cool. But anyway, there'd be a mix of oldies acts using a shared backup band. Right. Dell. I remember seeing him one time. He walked on stage and he carrying his guitar guitar around his his, his back, carrying his amp <laughs> as he's going on, plugs in and tore the place apart oh, wow. so he always rocked it even on those oldies bills you so know? one of the things you've done as you've spent 40 years in this van traveling around with these uh, these guys is you have made it a point to seek out your heroes yeah. guys you're interested in you've ended up writing liner notes and you know uh, pieces about some of these guys and some of the history part of that's always interested you mm. and it's lucky that you've had the smithereens because you know more people will answer your phone call than Joe Blow from Carteret, New Jersey. Although Joe's a good guy also. We did have a friend named Joe Blow in Carteret. <laughs> no, you did yes, not. Did. Yes. No. Yes. Joe, guy. if you're listening, how you doing? His last kids? name was spelled B-L-O-W. No, but we called him that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I did get to cross paths with a lot of people that uh, meant a lot to me and in some cases became friends with, you know. Uh, yeah. What a cool thing. And yeah. Sometime it works out, sometime it doesn't, but... Uh, yeah, to complete that circle, because you, know, you know we all take inspiration from different places, and some of those people, you know, I will still go back to certain records to to get uh, ideas for. I mean, the idea that you would, uh, you know, I know you've played on stage with Brian Wilson and I, you know, Bruce Springsteen, just it's sort of mind blowing a little bit, isn't it? I, I mean, compiled a list recently in the van when I had some free time of some of the, the people. I, I couldn't believe through the years how many people that I've. I, been able to actually sit in with or or, or back up yeah and in your downtime you do a lot of back playing drums for other folks i yeah. mean all the time that people maybe don't necessarily know about uh smithereens official smithereens.com dennis dykin is our guest today uh, if you live in or nearby Derry, new hampshire ridgefield connecticut new york new york on the 12th at uh, sony hall all falls church virginia or california check out official smithereens.com for information i don't know about sony hall you guys used to play every january at bb kings which is now closed it's closed what's I, sony hall well i haven't been there people tell me it's a very cool venue it's not far it's midtown on the west side um i forget the address 46th street maybe it might be the same folks that ran bb kings huh. they took it over i think it's supposed to be a nice venue i'll bet yeah uh yeah i think we played bb kings 15 or so years in a row. Oh, wow. False Church, too, I think even more. We played uh, going on 20 years, perhaps. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's just, <clears throat> just when we were sitting here talking. I mean, I've known you a long time. And I think about when I first came to FMU, I think in 97 or 98. And that's how many years ago is that, you know? And just the time. No, oh, it's insane. Man. <laughs> it's insane. You know? uh, show me or It's My Feeling from Dale Shannon. 
Oh, probably. But I got it. You're going to play Dell? Yeah. I got something else I want you to play. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. I thought this was my show, but. No, not when it comes to Dell. Um, <laughs> Those are both two number one hits, FYI. Yeah, but I got something here that's really special. Hang on. Just oh, those are those suck. No, you're going to. You're going to disagree when you hear it. Uh, let me remind folks about something else that's going on. Uh, somebody else you've, you've backed up on drums, our friend Laura Cantrell, yeah. is playing Friday the 11th of January. Is that next Friday already? Speaking of time, yes, at, at the is. Rubin Museum of Art on 17th Street, uh, part of a series called Naked Soul uh, with folks, I believe it's completely acoustic, uh, uh, why is it, well, that's that's why it's called naked. I don't believe Laura will be. I believe she'll be wearing clothes, just no microphones or uh, no uh, amplification of any kind. Uh, folks can get some information over at uh, the Rubin Museum of Arts website, which I don't think I have anywhere here, but uh, easy to find. It's next Friday, seven p.m. to eight thirty p.m. Uh, nice and early. Laura Cantrell, our friend, and just fantastic performer. Every time I see her, yeah, she's groovy. Laura's the best. Yeah, she is. Uh, hopefully, uh, this is one of those home burn CDs. Track number four. If, if hopefully it will play. If not, we'll play one of your choices. But this is, th- you know, when people say, "What's one of the best shows you've ever seen in your life?" This is ranks among uh-huh. the best shows I've ever seen. This was 1982. Del Shannon at the bottom line in New York. This was broadcast on uh, WNEW, I think, at the time. All right. And he was promoting that album he did, produced by Tom Petty, um, right. Drop Down and Get Me. And this is one of the songs. I don't know. Do you know that album? There's a couple killer tunes. A little tunes. bit. Yeah, a little bit. This is a song from that album. Track four, right? Is that what I said? Yes, the sir. Life Without You? Yes, sir. Oh. All right. Let's hear this more with Dennis Dykin and Del Shannon after this. No, it's not going to play. Sorry. After that big buildup. Yeah, nice work. Uh, Play one of your songs. What were my choices? Uh, Show me and... uh, Play one of my crappy songs. Uh, Show me It's My Feeling. Yeah. um, I love both. Show me. Yeah. Sorry about that. Since I've been away, I've heard a lot of people say, they tell me that you've been playing around. Things they say you do But baby I just gotta know For sure
from Smithereens 11. I don't know, that might be my favorite Smithereens record. And I bought all the Smithereens records as they came out. And it's always nice when... I mean, your first record is, like, so jam-packed full of hits, you know? And it's so definitive of the sound. Uh, And then, you know, it's always lovely when a few records later, it's like, they got better? You know what Mm. I mean? It's like, especially because you guys had already been a band for 10 years or whatever, you know, because there was so much time... Uh, you know, playing at the Court Tavern or whatever. Right. Uh, and then 11 c- comes out in uh, 1989, produced by Ed Stasium, who, worked, of course, worked the Ramones, etc. Uh, what did he bring? What does he bring? I mean, he's also been a guest on this show. What does he bring to to a thing? Oh, you know, Ed's an old Jersey boy, too. And we just got out like a house on fire with him because he, you know... We had a lot of shared uh, common Jersey things to talk about. And you know how that is when you meet somebody from where you're from. And you could just connect on a lot of levels. And he he was coming from a band 
a, a long history of playing in bands. And it's important, I think, for a producer mm. to get what that's about. It's not just hiring musicians to play on a track and back, uh, back up a vocalist. It's about for players, for individuals, uh, shared history, uh, dysfunctional family situation, whatever it is. You know, you got to... Uh, we always said Don Dixon and Ed were good uh, producers, babysitters, <laughs> psychoanalysts. You know, it takes it's all part of the job. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And he was he, he was a song guy, and coming from the band thing, and uh, he got where we were coming from, and and knew the studio very well. He probably told you he cut his teeth working on Midnight Train to Georgia. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In a studio in Jersey. In Jersey, right? Yeah. So he was. He was thrown into the fire, man, and he he learned on the job. He know he knew what he was doing. He he brought a lot, he, a lot of musicality. But did he come in and point to one thing or say, "All right, we're going to do this differently," or maybe you guys need to try this? Or was there? Can you point to anything? I mean, not necessarily he needed to do this, but just curiosity. Yeah, I'll tell you something. Yeah, that was the age of. Click tracks. Right. And he was all about that at the time. Oh. So and the first time you had to... I think that was the first... Cut to a click track. Yeah, for a full album, anyway. So they figure out the tempo, and they lay down literally just an electronic mm-hmm. click. And, and then, playing along to it, yeah. Huh. And how did that change your life? I mean, was it um, good in any way? Um... I mean, some of our favorite records speed up and slow down. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, of Beatles yeah. records do, which yeah. is why there's like bongos or cowbell mm-hmm. or, you know, on every Beatles That's record. Because right. they were like a little yeah. on well, radio's you know, case. In some cases, I thought it was a good thing. There was always one song on when we worked on an album with Ed where I said, let me try this without a click. And we ultimately kept that take. Huh. There was a few times that were pretty challenging for me. Certain tempos ought to a click. It's just not the way your mind computes that tempo from not being a guy who grew up playing with click tracks, mostly slower tempos. Mm. Um, so in some cases it was good. In some, some cases I really preferred we didn't. But, but that was a very successful album. You know? yeah. that's, that's the one thing I could point to. Um, so just let's talk about uh, mostly Pat would write the songs. Uh, would he make a demo? Would he bring them into a rehearsal? Would he play them on an acoustic guitar? Would how would the songs be brought to the band? Yeah, it was different uh, every time. A lot of a lot of times he would have demos. Sometimes he present them at rehearsal. Or in a case of in a lonely place on our first album, we were almost done tracking the album, and he brought the song into the studio. We cut it that day. Huh. So it was different, but he would make demos for the most part, yeah. And then we'd have at and it. And who did the baseline come from, Mike, or did they come from Pat? Um, mostly Mike, I'd say ninety percent, ninety five percent, ninety nine percent. I mean, a lot of your hits start with a baseline, you know. Do they? I don't know. One of them does. Can you just <laughs> agree with anything I say during this whole show? Well, I'm giving it my best shot, Mike. You're making it a little difficult. <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to say something correct once in a while. <laughs> well, uh, I don't. In my head, it Mike, does. Mike, you know? Mike really worked hard at coming up with his bass bass lines. He still does, and he always wants to hear the vocal before he goes to it. You know, because um, he likes to play counter well, the, to the vocal. Blood and Roses, Behind the Wall of Sleep. Do those both start with a bass sort of? Blood and Roses does. But th- that's the only one that comes to All mind. All right. So I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what band are you in? Anyway? <laughs> you are in a band, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe uh, Robert Criscow was right. Nay! 
Pat was such a wonderful, one-of-a-kind so, songwriter and singer. Though. I guess what I... Oh, he absolutely was. Oh, we should also point out something that I found out the hard way when I roadied for you twice. Oh, yes. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> uh, because, you know, actually, I was really in need of work. Remember, we had just mm-hmm. moved to New Jersey, and you very kindly uh, paid me to tune your guitars and set up your drums. And, that position is still open, Mike. <laughs> and help you well. I still need money, so I'm still <laughs> underemployed, as as always. Uh, but you guys tune down a half a step. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So most people tune their guitar, you know, their E, whatever. It's a half a step down, not even a whole step, a right. half. Well, that was just for coolness or just because Pat's voice is so low? It was uh, to accommodate Pat's baritone, but also the way he wrote, and actually the way Jimmy writes, too, uh, they prefer that tuning for the voicing of the chords and the way the chords, it's a big part of the smithereens sound. Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a more sinister yeah. sound and feel. Uh, so, And every track you've recorded is with that tuning. Yeah. That's amazing. I imagine that in some cases a producer might have sped up something you know, semitone or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but no, we always, always uh, went to E flat. So tell me, uh, and we're running out of time, so I want to pack so much more into this next mm. uh, bit. But uh, tell me, uh, a guy brings a song into a band, and what does you know? What percent better does it get when the three other smithereens throw their thing on it? Well, uh, you know, when if you if you're a real band, uh, and there's a few of them out there that the answer is quite you know. Quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Everybody, uh, were we talking off mic before or on mic about the sum of parts of a band? Uh, you know, they, they, uh, talk about remember. the Beatles, talk about uh, any number, the Beach Boys even. You know, I, yeah. I always miss Dennis's blend in, in the vocal. But it, there's so much that a band brings. Again, if it's a true band and everybody is, is injecting their personality and it, I, yeah, it, it makes it a whole different entity, really. Dennis, you're flatting. <laughs> Dear. What's the matter, buddy? Make too much money? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I hate to just run by 11 like that because it really was a, sort of a game changer in some ways. But again, interesting because it's 1989 and music is change, is about to just boom, to completely change again. Uh, Blow Up is next in 1991, which has the song Too Much Passion, which I always thought, well, this song is a hit. I mean, it just is. I think it made the top 40, actually. Yeah, but but why isn't that on, you know, So You Like Music or whatever? (laughs) So You Like Crappy Hit Music uh, from the 90s. uh, Yeah, I always wonder about that. Uh, I I don't have an answer for that, but I think it's, I think it's, yeah. But meanwhile, uh, you know, Nirvana comes, Mm. and I know that Kurt Cobain loves your band, and there's a a Nirvana book, I think you showed it to me, where there's a picture of them making Nevermind, and there's a cassette of one of your records on the mixing desk. Mm. That's what they were listening to when they're making Nevermind, right? Yeah, and we also heard that firsthand from Butch Vig, their producer. He produced the track for us, and... Totally, totally told us that. Now, was he going to produce Blow Up? Was he going to produce Eleven? Which was a date. A date with Smithereens yeah. in 94, which you guys switched to RCA. Don Dixon ended up producing it. And Lou Reed plays guitar yeah. solos on that record. He does, yeah. What? <laughs> he was a, a friend of Pat's and uh, I think Mike's maybe. And um, we asked him. We always like to have guests on the record. Yeah, always. The Honeys, yeah. all kinds of great people. Suzanne yeah. Vega, um, Del Shannon. So, Belinda Carlisle? Yeah. So... Patches asked him, and he showed up and played 
two great solos. I played on Jimmy's song Point of No Return, which is the real sleeper, I think. And what did he say? Did he just walk in and nod his head and go, okay? This he was pretty low-key. He brought his guy with him, and he brought a bunch of guitars and whatever else. I forget. A locker full of something. And, yeah, he was just went to work, which is, I guess, a, an image we don't really hold of Lou Reed. But he was a workman, workman-like dude, and came in and, and really took direction. Huh. And uh, you know, I think we comped uh, his his parts. As, That's fine. Yeah, which which. Uh, However, you create a, a solo, I have no no problems with that. Um, God save the Smithereens in 1999 with our friend Don Fleming producing uh, some great stuff on there, and it, I, I would say. I won't say it's an attempt to modernize your sound, but the the band is continually evolving. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, it was just a natural progression. Um, I really liked working with Don and John Aniello also was uh, engineering that at the dearly departed Magic Shop in New York City on Crosby Street. Um, that was a fun record to make. I think it's our best sounding record, actually. I sort of agree. Yeah. Uh, you want to hear all revved up from that? Sure. Let's hear that. Dennis Dyken and I will be chatting more uh, in a song or two from now. Uh, this is from the best-sounding Smithereens record. <laughs> so I say. Uh, produced by Don Fleming. The way you
is Sleeping Giant as Rex makes his way, uh, his two cents into the studio. Always good to see Rex. Sleeping Giant was... Well, it was the same thing as Dennis talking with Bell Sound with the, the name I wanted to use, but apparently somebody had it, so I and, didn't run a fight. And before we heard that, we heard Revved Up, which ended up being reworked into Christmas Time All Over the World, the Smithereens kind of uh, most well-known Christmas track, right? Yes, it was. Which I love that Christmas record you guys put out. Yeah, thanks. I think it's it's a fun record. There's a lot of tracks yeah. I'm, I think hold up pretty well. Jimmy has a song there called uh, Waking Up on Christmas Morning. I should should be considered a classic. Uh, okay, I want to, because we're running out of time, uh, let's rush through a few things. Uh, oh, yeah, Sleeping Giant is covering um, Bobby Fuller from this fantastic yeah. Before We were just talking about how sometimes when, this happened a lot in the 90s, there were a lot of tribute CDs, mm. and sometimes they didn't always turn out great. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard, hard to cover a great song, like, and... Why would you ever want to listen to the cover when you still have the original? Uh, so it's always nice. So this one's a good one. That's yeah, it. it is pretty pretty uh, solid. Yeah. So after God Save the Smithereens, then am I right? The next record is Meet the Smithereens? Could be. I'd have to go back and... I, I mean, there's comps, there's live stuff, blah, 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 but I believe the next record is a is a song-by-song cover of Meet the Beatles. Yeah, and, that's right. And, for, and I remember this got reviewed in the New York Times yeah. in a huge way. It kind yeah. of, I mean, I, which is great, but it was just such a... Uh, that record really clicked. I, yes. I, going into it, I thought, this is going to be fun, you know? We're going to make a fun record, and, you know, love. it's going to be like being a kid playing along with, with the Meet the Beatles. And, <laughs> uh, and we cut all the tracks in one session, and, oh, you know, we finished. We put a lot of love and work into it, and thought, this is going to be a fun record. But I had no idea. None of us really thought it was going to take off like it did. And it, funny. It, it really... It was it was a good moment. It helped us a lot. It got a lot of attention, and it uh, helped with bookings, and people paid more attention to us. And uh, it's a fun record. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the greatest thing since sliced toast or anything. But you, know. you ended up making another record of Beatles stuff. You ended up cutting a full uh, recreation of the Who's Tommy, another yeah. record that means a lot to you guys. Uh, and then in 2011, you made a record called 2011. With the 11 highlighted. Yeah, we did kind of a takeoff on the motif of the 11 album graphically. And um, I think it's a pretty good record. Yeah. You know? Uh, hey, we it, cut the tracks down in Mitch uh, Easter's studio. Around the time, uh, back with uh, uh, Don Dixon. With Don Dixon producing, yeah. You mentioned t- somehow Tom Petty came up earlier. I know you guys opened for Tom Petty mm-hmm. sometime around that era of time. How many shows was that? I think it was only eight Something like that. It was a, a mini warm-up tour for him, but he handpicked us. Did I ever tell you the story behind that? No. I, he was on the... I think he asked us to open in 88 also, and we couldn't at the time because we had our own our own tour, our own stuff to deal with. So I guess he was aware of us, and so he was um, in his car in Los Angeles purportedly. He told us this himself. We heard it from other sources as well. And uh, his this tour of his was looming. He's on the phone with his manager. Tom, we got to get an opening act for this tour. It's coming up in a month or two. All right, all right. I need an answer today. Okay, all right, all right. Or, okay, all right, all right. So he hangs up the phone with his manager, and he turns on, I think it was a satellite radio station, and a song, I believe it was Sorry, from 2011 comes on, picks up the phone, calls... And, can we get the smithereens to open? It? That's how it happens. Wow. Yeah, that's great. that's that's an, one of those what, incredible moments. What's the what size of venues were those? They were hockey arenas. 
Is that super different and super fun? It was super fun, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because when you're an opening act, you never know how many people are going to be filing in as you're mid-set. But people were there to see us, too, and they were given us standing ovations. It was incredible. One of the great things about when you're opener, if it's working, is you know you only got to play, I don't know, sometimes 30 minutes or 35 this minutes. This was 45 minutes, yeah. So you can kind of make your best songs, you know, and you're just boom, 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 yeah. hit after hit after hit. And right. people, I think it's smithereens, like, uh, I've had this this experience going to see you guys live where people are like, I didn't realize they mm. had so many songs I know. You know, yeah. it's just like, uh, there's so many smithereens songs, you know, depending on what set list you guys choose night to night, but it can go away where like, oh, that one and that one and that one, you know, and they just seep into your consciousness uh, somewhere. Some I know you guys opened for Squeeze yeah. back in the mm-hmm. day. That was great. Yeah. Uh, why? Why was that great? Because they were cool. They, I think, they got us. Good double bill. Like good double bill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we played the what was then called the Brendan Byrne Arena right. in the Meadowlands, opening for them. But That's it, a huge place. Yeah, but you know what? That night, uh, in the throes of the success of Green Thoughts, it was our show. Oh. It was really our show. All our Jersey homies and friends and parents and were there, and the crowd was there to see us. It was very exciting. That was really cool. Now, Squeeze were good. It, it was a good double bill, and we got along. And What's the trick? I mean, just sound-wise, do you just play a show in a hockey arena as if you were in the court tavern, or is it a different approach? Are you listening for different things? I mean... No, it's the same, I think. We're just playing, you know? And hopefully... We had good monitors, which make, is so important. Are you and, deaf at all? Um, yeah. If I, if I had one thing to tell uh, young people is protect young musicians is protect your hearing i've i've lost a, a good chunk of high end yeah and it, it's a drag your band is is not a quiet band <laughs> it's the monitor thing though and i didn't wear earplugs all those years i didn't start i was hanging out with will rigby at the bottom line in i think 1998 and he was complaining about his tinnitus or tinnitus and i'm saying yeah it's funny I, I, all these years i never got it then the next week i got ringing in my ears so thanks will <laughs> but well, it is uh, it's funny because i also have it although it's oh, it's mostly gone away now but oh, it was good. kind of bad i was doing some recording in my house and wearing loud earphones a lot and at the end of that project it was bad mm. and now i often wear one ear off cause or if you use headphones wear earplugs in addition to it uh, i'm telling you it's okay to do that and uh, a guy i know uh uh, told me who's a, who specializes in this. Um, you might know Dr. Mark Fagelson. Did I mean bass him player? He used to be in the world famous Blue Jays. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he works with veterans who've been exposed to a lot of loud yeah. explosions, and uh, he said a lot of it is psychological. You have to not worry about it. That's part of it. So the tinnitus part, yeah. I agree. It's it's just it's there, but the high end thing is a drag. There's oh, certain things it. I don't hear anymore. You know, uh, or, or hear, or sometimes I'll hear it in the background. And it, that, it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, any other opening band stories, bands, uh, audiences that it didn't work so yeah, well? Yeah, in the July 4th weekend of 1986, especially for you, wasn't out yet. Blood and Roses was getting played. We just signed with Premier, our agency, and they were throwing us out there to, to you know, gr- in a, it, it was great because they were throwing us out to open for people like ZZ Top and, um, Outback was no, not out, uh, oh, what was that band? That eighties band, Out Something. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Outfield. Out, yeah, and so they're throwing us to the wolves. West Virginia, maybe Wheeling, July Fourth weekend, indoor arena, festival seating. On the bill was ZZ Top, 
Ted Nugent, and maybe somebody else. So they throw us in there, and they didn't, I guess they told us, but they didn't tell the audience until 15 minutes uh, before we took the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, Ted Nugent cannot be boo! here. <laughs> well, it was more than boo, my friend. It was, you know, oh, I'm at the no. drums, so I can't run around the stage to dodge the lit fireworks, the glasses of Jack Daniels, the thongs that, that were being tossed at us. I mean, but we played our set and we got through it. Okay. So that, very memorable. <laughs> but Ted Nugent, here's the smithereens. Yeah. And, you know, I remember seeing a guy in the audience. I couldn't hear him, but he was visually flipping me the bird and saying, Blank, you. He was mouthing it to me, and I'm he's so so much venom. Blank, you. You still remember it like yesterday? I do. It was July fourth. Oh man, it's funny. I mean, I've have I have some experiences opening band, and one of the things I would always get is like heat for going on late, as if it was our choice when to right. go on at all. It's like yeah. it's all on a schedule printed, and. It, when you're the opening act, you want to make a good impression. You do what they say. You play for how long they say. You go on when they say. So if you're going on at 10.30 and the door's open to date, it's not the opening act's fault at all. It's the promoter or the, the headliner or whatever. Right. Don't blame the opening Sometimes they're waiting for more people to right. come in Often. to the, the venue. It's a lot of different things. Yeah, and, and sometimes I've had it where they come at you in the middle of the set and say, play two more songs. Yeah. You know, we need you to, they're not ready or whatever. So so don't yeah. blame the opening act, people. Use your, use your, use your common sense. Uh, Okay, so uh, the the most recent history of the band is sort of this strange and unpleasant and not quite settled chapter of the band. Mm. Pat Denunzio passed away just a little over a year yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, I guess he was sick for a while. I, I remember he was on stage for a while. He couldn't play the guitar for the last phase of the band. It was kind of a power trio, and Pat would sit there and sing. He had some debilitating uh he couldn't move his hands or his arms mm-hmm. i don't know exactly what uh really odd for a guy you've known for 35 years like a brother and i mean that in every way right. you know yeah, yeah. uh and then but uh, and i take it it was a, not a surprise but i mean yeah i guess it was a surprise when he passed away that was not what you were expecting right not really no we knew he wasn't doing great the funny thing i got an email from him that day oh <laughs> that day. so he didn't know he, he was did. scheduling things. He we, was were, still... we were going to be getting, we, we were trying to schedule a meeting to get together to talk about the new year, you know? Uh. And uh, yeah, so. How weird. Yeah. It still doesn't even seem real. It's weird, you know, when something like that happens because we knew each other so long. We've been through together so much. I mean, when you're in a band for that long and you travel and sleep and eat together and play together and create together, it's... And also you're putting food on the table is reliant on each other. You know, it's really a a strange relationship. And I know that can strain relationships, the money thing, especially when one guy's the songwriter and the other Mm -hmm. guy's that is... That's like why every band breaks up because Sting makes all the money and the other two guys are like, hello. Sting who? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what his last name is. Yeah. So uh, was there a moment after Pat died where you thought, okay, I guess I better go get a job or did you think or did you always think well we can still do this um you know being that we know each other so long jimmy mike and i it's like and we've been doing this is all we basically do yeah i don't think that ever we ever consider that maybe 
just in the soup of thinking what what's going on here and and not you know during that very horrible period but what happened i think we talked about this little steven was booking shows at count basie theater and we had a gig on the books for january right pat died in december of, of 17 we had a, a a show booked for january so steven said look let's keep the date and let's Make a tribute to Pat. We'll bring a bunch of vocalists in uh, that get the music, that love the band, and that's what we did. And it was a really special. So night. it was supposed to be a Smithereens gig turned into a tribute to right. Smithereens. Yeah. And two of the vocalists were Marshall Crenshaw, who you go way back, mm-hmm. and Robin Robin from, Wilson from Gin Blossom, from the Gin Blossom, who's doing these January uh, couple shows with and, us. And so what's happened is starting. A few months ago, really six months ago, seven months ago, you guys started playing gigs with either one of those two guys Correct. fronting the band. Yeah. Uh, does Robin play guitar? No. Well, he does, I think, a little bit, but he doesn't play when he's with but us. But when Marshall, Marshall plays, plays with guitar, guitar, he does yeah. play guitar, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, what's it like? Just Did it feel good just the first time? Just like, okay, this is, this is working. This feels good. I mean, it must feel good to play the songs, but it's just a little strange, right? It's strange. I mean, it feels good because I'm with Jimmy and Mike. You know, and so and, and we should point out that Mike left the band for about ten years, moved to the West Coast, uh-huh. started a family, right? And now he's back, right. And like we said, he's the secret sauce. He Mike is, you know, and there's so much more to it. I mean, yeah, yeah. We, we, so we still dwell on way too much grammar school humor. You know, the teachers, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. You're still making fun of Mister What's His Name, Mister Wiseman, oh, and Mister Gilrain. That's yeah. so perfect. Yeah, it is, and it's it, fun. It keeps us going. So the, you know, it's just it's such a a family and um and these two new guys are are fitting in and there are will there be gigs with both of these guys booked this year um well yeah i mean yeah we i think these gigs are with robin coming up are there yeah there's more but the west coast run is with marshall oh it is okay great. and i think a few others too with marshall yeah let me remind everyone one more time uh dairy new hampshire on the 10th ridgefield connecticut on january 11th new york new york at the sony hall saturday january 12th i guess that's a week from today right. uh, friday the 18th at falls church virginia at the state theater and then a bunch of uh gigs in la in california do you know is there an opening band on those la gigs i don't know huh, i don't know yeah. uh it's is it is the future gonna be a new smithereens record i i yeah I just it's just a matter of scheduling it of getting everybody's schedules together. But right. you write songs. Jimmy's always written yeah. a song or Mike two. Mike is here writing too, you know. And uh yeah, I think there's a lot of life in our recording career <laughs> moving forward. How interesting. Yeah. I know. It's uh it's it's kind of weird sitting here talking about it, you know. <laughs> but uh about all this, the fact that I, you know, like I said, it's just weird thinking Pat's no longer here. I really, you know, sounds cliche, but I feel like he's with us when we're playing his songs. I, you know, I saw you guys with Marshall Crenshaw. I think it was the first gig after Pat passed away. Might have been, and uh, it is, it is weird to, because it's the Smithereens, but it's somebody else's voice mm-hmm. coming out. But it's still the thing, you know. I think it's a testament to the songs too. Yeah, great you songs. Know? Yeah, Pat was gifted gifted writer and uh and uh, you know we're never it was never our intention to look for uh, a, a look-alike or a sound-alike you know that's not what we, it, huh. we just wanted to work with somebody to keep the music right. alive who gets the music like when you go see the temptation 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the platter. Right, right. Well, yeah, I guess you could have done that. One of the things that you guys have done for years is kind of these 80s block parties, or there's the summer 80s tour where they'll package the Go-Go's mm-hmm. and you or the Flock of Seagulls or whatever. And uh, are, are those folks still going to be interested in you guys, you think? That kind of package? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean... Uh, I would think so. Oh, I would think so, too. I don't. I just don't know if anything is being worked on at this time. And, and is any... Um, you know, working with the guy from the Gin Blossoms and Marshall Crenshaw both have hits that all the audiences know. Is there any idea of folding some of those songs? Not at this time. No. No, no it's pretty much a smithereen show. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it'd be fun to do that maybe in a different setting, but these are smithereen shows. Yeah. Robin is so passionate about the band, and I didn't, we didn't know this, but he... He met us at an in-store that he, he was working at a record store in Tempe, Arizona on the Green Thoughts tour, and he was so thrilled to meet us uh, back then. So he was just a kid. Yeah. Ah. And uh, he told us this story. And, That's uh, it. Yeah. Well, I guess when you've been around for 40 years, you end up meeting people influenced by you, just mm-hmm. you know, like you are meeting the people that influenced you. Yeah. It, it's something, because so when you're in the eye of the storm, so to speak, you don't always get that. But when people reach out to you, it's pretty meaningful. You, know? you and I were talking about how we both have a billion friends who play the guitar or write songs or play the drums or whatever who dreamed of you know people who saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan mm-hmm. and, and went yeah I'm gonna do that mm-hmm. and not everybody got to do it all and I definitely get the feeling that it's been a roller coaster ride for the smithereens and we've talked about some of the ups and downs today but that you feel very much uh, blessed and happy yeah. and that you got your fair share yeah, I I do feel that way, and I, I just I always look forward to what's what's coming next too. Uh, a new record, being on the road to keep doing this is what I, you know, it's what I love to do, and I get to play with. I just did the Christmas tour with Ronnie Spector, and coming up, going on the Rock Legends cruise with Dave Davies in February. Uh, <laughs> do you need a roadie for that? Uh, Dennis Dakin has been our guests today. What are you doing a year from now? Um, I'm going to be doing a new Bell Sound record. No. You'll be right back here again a year from now. Let's make this every year. We'll do this every year. I'll make the record here. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, OfficialSmithereens.com, place for information about uh, Dennis Dyken. I've got some cool guests coming up. Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the... Hey, Rex! I guess I need your first track. So let's talk about uh, some other things as I very slowly give you... Here I go. Ah, ha, ha. Have I got the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Let me remind you... This is the mighty WFMU East Orange, WMFU, Manhoven, New York City, and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah, man.